Progressive Rugby League. Hello, John O'Duncan. When I hear the word class, I'm transported back to ninth grade English. I'm reading the part of Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. I'm satisfied with the gravity I'm bringing to the role. And then my voice breaks. And the classroom erupts. But luckily for me, I can suppress that moment for one more hour as we talk not about the school class, and not the Sean Johnson kind of class either, SJ, my DMs are open. No, we're talking class from a societal point of view. Of course, class and rugby league are synonymous. I mean, has there ever been a more clear-cut, more well-defined example of class uprising than the formation of the Northern Union in 1895 that ultimately led to the game of rugby league that we know and love? Not from my blinkered perspective. And because of that history, you can't really go deep on rugby league without discussing class. But in Australia at least, well, perhaps we don't discuss it as much as we should. Well, my next guest has done his bit to corral us back to this most pertinent of rugby league issues by penning an epic and thought-provoking essay entitled The Art of Class War in the latest edition of The Monthly. The essay reflects on how Peter Volandis has used a working-class ethos to seemingly shake up the Australian corporate sporting landscape. It's also a thorough examination of the diverging class paths of Australia's two premier winter codes, the AFL and NRL. So what does all this mean for rugby league's trajectory in the coming years and decades? After 25 years clawing its way back from the abyss following the Super League war, are we on the cusp of rugby league's moment? Or are rugby league fans just mistaking a change in management style with a change in future fortunes? Well, we've got the author of The Art of Class War, Lech Blaine, on the line to give us his view. Lech, kudos on a formidable essay and welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was an uh, epic introduction. <laughs> I feel like I'm in good company. <laughs> no worries. Thanks so much for your time. Like, when I came across this essay of yours, you know, my girlfriend flopped the latest edition of the monthly on the dining room table. I flicked through it, and it was one of those moments just like when you hear a great song for the first time and you think, how is it possible this song hasn't been in my life until now? That's the feeling <laughs> I had upon reading the article. I immediately knew this was the article I'd been waiting for over the last few months. But what drive you to write the piece? Yeah, I... In all honesty, that's just been floating around in the sort of orbit of my obsessions since I was quite young, really. And I probably wasn't so aware of the class difference as a kid because sport was just sport. As a teenager, because I guess I just started to mix. My family had really transformed from being from fairly working class stock to being like comfortably middle class by the time that I I was sort of in high school. So I was mixing in completely different social networks and what even my brothers maybe did and definitely what my my parents did. And I was coming into contact more with the stigmas that surrounded the cultural activities and cultural obsessions of my youth, the predominant one of which was rugby league. Mm. And because I was fairly well educated and people didn't necessarily detect where I'd come from. And so I I was fairly camouflaged in that sense, and I was able to sort of get fly-on-the-wall sense of how people sort of thought about rugby league in particular and just working-class people in general because I think that a lot of the time rugby league was just being used as sort of a way to to talk about working-class people without necessarily using the blunt sort of classist language that might get you in trouble. So, yeah, that's that's a long answer. But I think that as a teenager, I had a lot of conversations where I couldn't really articulate my anger <laughs> at first. And then as I've sort of developed as a writer and just in general, I, I think I'd just become more interested and I wanted to sort of explore that yeah. and see if my fundamental suspicions about that were actually 
had intellectual grounding or whether I just had a chip on my shoulder about class. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, while class isn't explicitly discussed much, it does hover just beneath the surface in the way rugby league is referred to by the sports and by certain sections of the community. Like you said, it's like having a go at rugby league and rugby league players and rugby league fans is a safe way of having a dig at the working class. I mean, in today's world, you can't get away with saying working class people are bums, and rightly so, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can say rugby league players are bums. In fact, you exactly, know, yeah. yeah, generalizing about rugby league players and is quite common, especially when there's issues with player behavior and stuff. So it's like when something like that happens, it's all bets are off and people have license mm-hmm. to generalize. And just, just stuff like <laughs> references to to tattoos and which mm. which seems so trivial but it actually does mean something and it, it depends on where you are but like when you're talking about rugby league players a lot of the time like you don't get an nrl contract and part of the nrl contract is to go out and, and get a bunch of tattoos like that's mm. that's the way that if you spend a lot of time in regional australia and and the outer suburbs of, of cities that's how people look at work sites that's how people look in factories mm. and I, I think that there's this disconnect because maybe a lot of middle-class people just aren't coming into contact with those people on a daily basis and so when they do come into contact with these guys a lot of whom come back from working class backgrounds there's just this sort of visceral reaction to it and i don't think that people are conscious of it i don't think people are deliberately shitting on working class people Mm. by doing this it's just that that's that's probably their their closest representation of working class especially men obviously with rugby league players Mm. And yeah, I, I don't think that it's fully been examined by either the people who are sort of perpetuating that and also by working class people in general because they're sort of oblivious to it. Mm. Now, we'll get deeper into the, the class stuff a bit later, but your article sort of centres on Peter Volandis and the art of rugby league administration is not unfamiliar to you. You grew up around it. Can you tell us about how rugby league was part of your upbringing in Queensland? Yeah, I came from a really proud rugby league family. My, my dad was from Ipswich. His father was a trade unionist and was a blacksmith on the railway in Ipswich. And the Blaine family was really integral in building the Railway Rugby League Club in Ipswich, which later became the North Tigers. And so this is sort of what I touched on in the article, is that there was this really direct link between the trade union movement and rugby league. Like It's been lost to a certain extent, but yeah, it was a really clear-cut link and there was a club that was essentially for the people who worked on, on the railway. And yeah, my dad, he was pulled out of school at 13. He was born in 1949, so that was at a time when, when working-class kids. He was actually the, the youngest of 11 kids, and that's the latest any of them stayed at school. All of them dropped out after primary school. He got to go to grade 8, got pulled out, and then went to the meatworks. He was a really keen rugby league player and had older brothers who were exceptional footballers, and, and he looked like he was going to be like a decent player as well, but he actually suffered a workplace injury at the meatworks at the age of 16 and so he could actually never play football again which was his absolute obsession and so pretty much straight away he spent a long time in hospital but pretty much as soon as he got back out he started coaching and started managing and he sort of dedicated a lot of his life outside of his family and outside of his work to first yeah coaching rugby league and then later he moved away from Ipswich and moved to various places around country Queensland but he was a president of the Wandai Wolves up in the South Burnett and then later we moved to Toowoomba where he was pretty heavily involved and he was later on the board of the Toowoomba Rugby League and he was a sponsor of the Yogi Bears and yeah he sort of just Mm. had lots of fingers in the pies um, here there and everywhere. And how has your relationship with rugby league evolved over your lifetime? You sort of touched on it in your first answer, but how has it evolved? Massively. I um, 
I was completely obsessed with rugby league as a kid because all my brothers, especially one of my brothers, Stephen, was an exceptional player and I was the youngest of all these athletes. My sisters were really good athletes as well. And But I was just always a shithouse athlete. And I sort of, probably not in a dissimilar way to what my dad did, after he lost the ability to play football, he became sort of your stereotypical armchair expert. He was, I think, at North Tigers. They're actually celebrating the 40th anniversary this year, but he was like a selector. He was like a coach. He was like a manager. He was on the board. And so he was sort of just put all of his obsession towards all the the thinking about the game, that side of the game, because he could play it. And, and that's what I was like as a kid. I, I, I just never really had the knack for it. I was never tough enough or quick enough. But yeah, I, I substituted for that by basically trying to be like a rugby league encyclopedia. <laughs> and so, yeah, I would literally spend all my weekends and, and then afternoons after school, either when my dad had a pub, I'd be in the bar and I'd have like a rugby league almanacs and I'd just be going through and just throwing names at him from whenever and generally he knew them and he'd, he'd have a story and he would fill in the artificial stories behind all of these famous players or like completely anonymous players and yeah so I really um because of those class differences between me and my dad that I was talking about I, I had a quite privileged upbringing compared to him and, and, and he was born in 1949 I was born in 1992 mm. this sport created this rapport between us that just wouldn't have existed it created these rituals of language and of yeah just bonding and just in a way that was outside of ourselves and connected to community and you know like he, he named me after Lech Walesa who was a, a really famous trade unionist from Poland and he was involved with the Labour Party and, right. and he, I was always super aware that rugby league it wasn't just a sport but it actually had it had like real significance for the lives of my um, grandfather and for my dad's siblings and for all the similar sort of communities and yeah it was really quite a beautiful thing mm. now let's get to the article so in your essay you make the case that rugby league with the super league war firmly behind it and now seemingly united behind peter Verlanders, is the sleeping giant of australian sport now, I thought that title was permanently reserved for soccer in Australia, but leaving, <laughs> leaving that aside, why do you make that argument? I think it was, it was partly just an analogy to how China has been sort of interpreted by political pundits for a while, and, mm. and I sort of saw some just like funny analogies between that and rugby league because of some of those, mm. the class consciousness of the sport. So yeah, that was, that was probably more about that. I was aware of the way soccer is talked like that, but I... Yeah. I think that when you lay it all out, it's pretty... Um, and I think you become so used to the natural state of being that it's easy to forget how things end up the way that they are. And, and so I think that, especially for AFL fans, and you know, I, I definitely don't have any hate for AFL. My sister plays it and loves it, and I think that it's a great sport. But I, I think that for a lot of AFL fans, especially in the southern states, who haven't had any reason to really do much research into the story of rugby league, that I probably appreciate the historical anomaly of of that at the exact moment that pay TV money was starting to filter into professional sport, rugby league got hijacked by the civil war for three years. Mm. And that for over a decade after that, you had News Limited drawing financial resources from the NRL because of the losses that they sustained during the Super League War. Mm. And whether that's right or wrong is sort of irrelevant. It's just that that's how we got to this point. The, the point of the of that sort of stuff wasn't that the Super League War had destroyed the popularity of, of rugby league so much. It was that it destroyed the ability of rugby league administrators to transfer that popularity into structural financial infrastructure in terms of what we've seen with the AFL, the way that they've been able to expand, the way that they've been able to gain a significant asset base, mm. the way that they've been able to invest 
in Auskick all over the country and especially in Queensland and New South Wales, rugby league just didn't have the financial surplus to do that. And that was because of the Super League war. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a sliding doors moment because it, it so easily could have gone the other way. But yeah, I think it was it was more just a play on that and it was yeah. more this idea of what happens when, when rugby league isn't sort of fighting with one arm behind its back. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Rugby league was hobbled for over a decade after the Super League war. It just wasn't one year of war. There was a long aftermath. And I don't know, from my personal experience, when I was a kid, I was probably, what, 12 or something when it all kicked off. And before that, rugby league was all we spoke about at school. And then one year later, literally one year later, you were embarrassed to to say that you liked rugby league. Things had changed so quickly um, and other sports were, were cool and, and rugby league was very much on the nose. So, yeah. It took a, a long time to, to get over that's, that. And, and that's really interesting. My own personal experience of, of the Super League War was that I was five in 1997 and mm. my family were diehard Broncos fans and so I didn't really have any concept of what the Super League War except uh, I thought the Super League was awesome and yeah. the, uh, the Broncos were awesome. And so, <laughs> especially in country Queensland, there, there probably wasn't really that residue warfare because... Everyone was just Broncos fans pretty much and mm. there wasn't really the all the rifts or the social fallout from it. So, yeah, that's really interesting to mm. hear that that's what it was like for you personally. Yeah, it, I mean, it's great to get the Queensland perspective as well. I mean, a few months ago, I, I got schooled on, on Queensland rugby league history by Joe Gorman who wrote... Uh, oh, yeah, great guy. I was talking to him the other day. Yeah, yeah, so uh, I learned a lot from that book. Now, Lek, it seems to me like class is rarely explicitly discussed when it comes to Australian sport. Besides the, the very superficial... League is the working man's game. Union is is for the leather patch brigade. Do you agree? And why do you think that is, if so? Yeah, it's definitely not discussed beyond the sort of those surface level stereotypes. And again, like the point of the article wasn't to say that rugby league is this working class paradise, especially now. Like the game is, especially at the elite level, is fairly well divorced from its working class roots. And they're certainly not, even if they've come from working class backgrounds, it's just certainly not the same sort of structure as what it was when it started out. Mm. And also that most rugby league fans now are middle class. Mm. So the weird part about it is that this sport, which is a behemoth in Queensland and New South Wales, it's the most popular sport on television and in some ways it's the most popular sport on television in the country if you include State of Origin. But it's still tarred with these stigmas that really go back to this previous state of being that most people now don't even remember how they came about, but they've just been perpetuated. Yeah, I I guess I just wanted to sort of pick that apart and see how we arrived Mm. at those sort of stereotypes because they didn't just come out of nowhere. Like They're extremely well embedded in in terms of the social history of Australia. Mm. Yeah, I think you you touched on something very insightful there. It's funny doing this podcast, I've had so much more exposure to the UK game than I ever had before. And it seems to me that in the UK game, they talk about class a lot more. And I wonder if it is because rugby league in the UK has never really been able to shake free of those societal class structures. You know, there's probably a million reasons for that. But either way, the sport in the UK can't really be considered upwardly mobile, while the game in Australia, like you say, has crossed that class divide somewhat. And maybe we don't feel the need to discuss it as much as it hasn't necessarily restricted the game's development. Yeah, I think that... um I think class is probably less of a taboo in the United Kingdom in the respect that both middle-class people talking about class but also working-class people are probably more class-conscious as mm. well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not always a bad thing. But, yeah, the thing about rugby league in Australia was that and, – and that's why Australia is such an anomaly in terms of its popularity is that it gained widespread support in Australia's biggest city, which is Sydney, mm. and then its third biggest city, which is Brisbane, which had never gained that type of support in London. And so that's – 
essentially what hobbled it. Whereas in Sydney, even though it was hemmed in by those class issues to some extent in terms of getting access to, to private schools, it was really, really agile in terms of accepting the sponsorship and funding from whoever had money. Like rugby league has never shied away from capitalism. Like that's that's the whole reason that it exists. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's I think that that's been a good thing but yeah I think that that really explains the difference is that rugby league was able to get widespread appeal because it simply took off in areas that had larger population bases than what it did in um, the United Kingdom Mm. Now Lek can you flesh out for us the comparative class trajectories of the AFL and the NRL I've never really paid much attention to the AFL from a class perspective but it clearly has cross class appeal especially for those in AFL states and it's incredibly popular there but you paint a picture in your essay of a sport that seems to be moving towards a more middle-class ethos and I guess the, that perception is exacerbated by the entry of Peter Volanders into the sporting limelight. How do you see that all unfolding? Yeah, well, I'm not. A, I'm certainly not an expert on the AFL, and I I think that yeah, it's it's certainly not that I was trying to equate the AFL with say rugby union because I think rugby union doesn't have that cross class appeal in Australia mm. whereas all of the great things about rugby league in terms of being a working class sport and, and providing social outlets for, for working class people like the AFL has that as well in the southern states and then it also has the power afforded to it by the establishment and I, I wasn't really aware that that had tilted to such an extent in terms of the influx of players through the draft and I just found that super interesting and that wasn't to say that there's plenty of working class players in the AFL still. I just found it really interesting that these schools, the GPS schools in Melbourne, which traditionally hadn't been the strongest schools as far as I can tell, had invested so much time and resources into attracting the best players and then it's reached this point now where yeah they're like producing 25 percent of the players going into the draft and that's like 11 schools in melbourne and i i just found that super interesting that that's been happening at the same time yeah because it's sort of a a bit of a piss take in terms of looking at the differences between volandes and gillan mclaughlin and that's sort of just a bit of theater in a lot of ways but Mm. um I think that there is more to it than that. And certainly, if you talk to a lot of people behind the scenes, they tell you that they think that it it has a tangible effect on the way that a leader might respond to different issues. If they are emotionally in touch with people who don't have power, that's going to mean that they might be able to respond with slightly more empathy. Mm. Yeah, and... I think the talking about the diverging class trajectories, I suppose that's also exacerbated when you consider the proportion of rugby league players who are coming from a an Indigenous or Pacific Islander background, which is, I think, over 60% now. So, uh, yeah, it's, it is interesting to, to sort of compare that to, like I say, 25% coming from 11 of Victoria's private school. So it's, it's fascinating stuff. Now, like you spoke to Peter Volandis for this essay, and I should say your article had some very heavy rugby league hitters in Phil Gould, Professor Megan Davis, friend of the show, Peter Beattie, Roy Masters, John Quayle, and more. It's quite a lineup. Now, what did you learn about Peter Volandis from your dealings with him and also about how others spoke of him? Yeah, it was like I went into I went into writing the essay and I probably had a little bit of that cultural, like just inbuilt cultural cringe where in some ways I was pretty cynical. I didn't think that it was possible for him 
and, and I don't mean that even so much the public popularity that can be quite fleeting that right. like I don't know this isn't the world that I'm moving in terms of like I'm not a sports journalist and so I, I didn't really know the full sort of scene but yeah and, and that, that was the main thing that I really tried to push people for and there's people that I spoke to off the record as well who couldn't be quoted and just in terms of I, I wasn't trying to sum up Peter Volandis from his racing history or anything I purely wanted to focus on the rugby league stuff and mm. yeah I, I just couldn't believe that there was so many people who with seemingly diametrically opposed views about different things who all, even if they had certain misgivings about him, all thought he'd done something which nobody else had been able to do, which was to bring all of these different sides together. Mm. And so, you know, it's a pretty short period of time and a year can be a long time so it's really gonna have to wait and see how it all plays out but i got the genuine sense that he's a extremely effective administrator and i i know that there was yeah it's easy to be cynical if if everyone's saying someone is good or someone's a genius or whatever but yeah i I spoke to people that i really trusted Mm. uh, not just on rugby league but in general who who had really intimate dealings with him and and they were who, who also went into meeting him in this position with quite a lot of cynicism because they'd been warned about him from other people and then they um, dealt with him in person and they found him to be a breath of fresh air and, and so I'm sure that if you were on his bad side that you would have a completely different view and there's a lot of people on his bad side so I can only sort of go off the people that I spoke to and, and as I said I tried to get as many diverse people from completely different backgrounds and completely different factions within rugby league and, and they all even if they, as I said, even if they had some misgivings, they all thought he was ultimately the best thing that had happened to rugby league for a while. And why do you think that is? And why is it that virtually, it seems, the entire rugby league public has got behind him? I mean, is is it that this time in history is tailor-made for his style? Uh, it seems there's a societal trend that is suspicious towards the, the smooth talker. And Peter Vlanders mm. is the antithesis of that. Do you think that it's his style that's resonating with people? Or do you think that he is that once-in-a-generation administrator that have people drooling over him? It's all the different things. Like, it's, I think timing definitely... It's long enough since the Super League war that a lot of these things have played out. So maybe if he had have been there at the beginning of the, the commission, he would have faced the same teething issues that the other administrators faced. And so, yeah, I think that a lot of these people have just reached the end of their tether and they, they were probably ready for, for someone to show leadership. And I think that he'd just been on his own, basically doing his own apprenticeship for, for dealing with the absolute shit fight that comes from the politics of rugby league and so that sort of prepared him for that and he's extremely pragmatic about maintaining relationships with all the various power brokers in terms of politics in terms of the media and then yeah that other thing which is the cult of personality that he sort of formed around Mm. himself which is i didn't really think too much about that while i was writing the essay but it's sort of yeah, it sort of goes to that whole place where we're at in in Western societies where we seem to be yearning for authenticity, even if sometimes it can be unpolished. We're sort of sick of, say, we as, as a social collective, not as me personally, but we seem to be yearning for authenticity. And yeah, I'm sure that there's some people who think that Rural Andes is, is, is exaggerating it, and that's what all leaders do to a certain extent. But there's definitely no doubt that he genuinely... Um, identifies still with where he came from even though he's he's in a lot of ways moved a a long way away from that in terms of financially and Mm. and socially yeah i mean i'm fascinated by the the whole style thing and but yeah like you say really we can only judge him once once we see how the sort of the the broadcast revenue rights picture pans out over the next few years you know rugby league and other sports have taken a haircut on revenues from COVID 19 we're not 100 percent sure on the details about 
how rugby league's haircut compares to the AFLs. But mm. you know, I suppose two things are clear, and they're clear from your article. And he's got a really good track record of getting his way. And B, he has seems to be an insatiable work ethic and what seems like obsessive zeal to beat his opponent. And uh, and better than that, I think your article paints him as a, a much more collaborative leader than than what I thought he might be from how the the media portrays him. So they're they're excellent signs. But yeah, I yeah. Suppose- and, I, and you talk to different chairmen and stuff, and they're pretty powerful people. So he knows who the the lines. So yeah, it's hard to judge. But yeah, the the sense that I, I got was quite different from the public persona. And yeah, I, I wasn't sitting in meetings or anything. But like even someone like Nick Pappas, like Nick Pappas has got no incentive to bullshit to a journalist from the monthly like that's not usual rugby league territory sort of thing like i i, I know that there's lots of different vested interests and, and people are generally in rugby league are, are so paranoid and sometimes for good reason but it does seem like there's some pretty good signs mm. and, and of course it's important to remember a fair bit is still totally out of his control you look at the brisbane broncos this year they're, they're a rebel which is a, a bit of a problem because the broncos are the the highest rating team in the nrl and and ratings for Broncos games have kind of dive-bombed this year. So if that continues for a few years, it, it makes uh, broadcast negotiations quite difficult. And uh, I suppose on a related topic, something that he does have control over, that expansion of the game is an issue that you know could either grow the revenue of the game or, or otherwise. So people are saying Western Australia might be good with a new parochial market, but it seems that Peter Valanzas seems a bit cool on that, preferring more to fish where the fishes are. So I don't know. We'll wait and see what happens, I suppose. Now, like Peter Valanders has won over News Corporation. Now, is, is that the key for a rugby league administrator? Because obviously News Corp are big players in the game. They have a certain worldview. And if they don't like you and if you don't fit their kind of preferred archetype, well, often they'll go after you until they, until they get you. And it seems like yeah. the, the Peter Beatty and Todd Greenberg combination, despite you know, doing a decent job during their time at the NRL. Of course, it wasn't perfect. It seemed like it got to the point where it felt untenable. You know, Greenberg was maybe too smooth, too woke, maybe. Uh, didn't seem fair dinkum. And, and Peter Beattie, well, he's a, a former Labor Premier. So in the current media climate, do you need News Corp behind you to get any clean air and get anywhere? I mean, Peter Beattie admitted to you in your essay that he didn't have the clout in Sydney that Peter Vlanders had. I take that, that he's talking specifically about News Corp and the Daily Telly. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's, it's a tough one because you're sort of weighing up your own ethical allegiances and, and, and all that sort of thing. But mm. um, for a sporting administrator, especially for a rugby league administrator, history's shown it. Like, there's no point having someone in a job, A, who doesn't have a good relationship with News Limited. As much as you might have a um, visceral desire to fight a war with News Limited, it's just, like, ended in disaster. And, like, that's not even just with the Super League war. We saw that happen again with John Grant mm. and that directly benefited the AFL purely out of spite from Rupert Murdoch chucking them another 40 or $50 million mm. with their TV rights deal. And so, yeah, I honestly, as much as it, it's fairly morally dubious to sort of look at it that way, like rugby league needed to be completely pragmatic and go, well, we, we actually need someone here who not only has a track record of working with News Limited, but in some ways, this is a whole thing in terms of the conflict of interest. Like because of his racing position, people have said that there's a conflict of interest. He won't be able to make decisions because he's tied up with News Limited in terms of the money that they both Mm. sort of pump into each other but that means that he's got hard power he's got hard power and the only thing that News Limited respond to not so much on a macro level because I don't think that the Murdochs are sitting around really worrying about it that much but on a micro level in terms of those journalists at the Daily Telly 
or wherever, they were always just going to respect Peter Volandis more because he, he's part of that whole world. Like mm. we, we had two Queenslanders before that, and for all their best intentions, they just got absolutely smashed. And that was just never going to happen to Volandis because he'd just been there for so long in these different positions and because he wields so much power in Sydney. Like they, they were just never. I think that he's even sort of said himself that eventually, like his luck's going to run out and. <laughs> If any sport's going to chew up here for Landis, it's going to be rugby league, and so I'm sure that these, there's going to be there's going to be times where and that sort of happened a bit recently in terms of Phil Rothfields was pretty unhappy with him talking about appointing Phil Gould, and so that's sort of another one of those old flare ups. But mm. I, I just can't see it being as bitter as what the, the public campaigns that were waged against those previous mm. leaders, just because purely because he he has so much power within Sydney. Yeah, I'd also argue that uh, his style, like we were talking before, he has that kind of I don't know everyday sort of bloke style that that sort of resonates with you know those the, the daily telly i suppose and that sort of readership and and I, as we're sort of saying that trend towards what people perceive as the authentic and you know peter volandis kind of taps into that and, and maybe like you say this is rugby league's opportunity you look at scott morrison doing his best to prove he's a, a rugby league fan and and as a an extension to that you know the government's obsession with making tradies happy we, we all love a tradie but our government's kind of infatuated so um, even when they announced their their arts package, it was all about um, helping tradies. So I guess yeah. I guess rugby league may as well take advantage of this time. Oh, uh, and yeah. it's a real tipping. I think it's a real tipping point for rugby league and all of the historical weaknesses that it's had in terms of the boardrooms being filled with people who didn't grow up loving the game and or who loved the game but couldn't sort of openly support it. That's sort of just been rerouted a little bit because. Elections are being won and lost in seats that are rugby league obsessed. And so that's why in New South Wales you have a Liberal government, which is a political party that historically you never would have associated with rugby league. And, mm. you know, they fought a massive public backlash about the stadiums and so forth. And yet they still got re-elected, whether that's right or wrong, like morally economically whatever like um there's a lot of rugby league fans out there and they're not always well represented within the media but yeah i think that that's an opportunity that rugby league can't miss and i think that what it will do as well is that you're going to see the labor party coming back to the party as well and i know after the 2015 grand final for example that after jonathan thurston kicked the field goal that bill shorten wanted to find out okay how do we um because there's a fair bit of talk about the Labor Party having lost rugby league heartlands and, mm. and he wanted to know how do we win them back and people told him, give them a stadium, give Townsville a stadium and, and so Labor came out and so they built the Townsville stadium and then Malcolm Turnbull had to come out and he had to match them. <laughs> and so what you ended up with was with this brand new rugby league stadium in Townsville and it's, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but like there's certainly other sports and AFLs is a big one that have historically leveraged their social power to get heaps from the government mm. and i think that yeah rugby league are, are, are simply like trying to do the same thing and that, yeah that, that's a fascinating element of this whole situation that the rugby league vote is a, is a prize vote you know like we say scott morrison kind of jump ship from rugby union lover to quote-unquote diehard leaguey go sharks mm. uh when he when he entered parliament it kind of reflects what's been happening in australian politics for the past 30 years as you say Labor's traditionally the party of the working class, the, the rugby league. But over the last 30 years, the working class vote, the rugby league votes, it's kind of up for grabs. So the Labor Party has its issues around identity that they're sort of grappling with between working class traditions and I guess their inner city university educated base. And that's a, a tricky coalition to balance. And we've seen the conservatives take advantage of that. And what better way to let the working class know that it's safe to vote for you than by telling them how much you love rugby league. And, and this, like, 
it's so hard to articulate to people from outside who maybe aren't interested in sport or maybe or particularly in rugby league or, or aren't from Queensland or New South Wales and just like all of these intricacies of class and history, how important it is and because it's received as being so trivial mm. in most places. But the whole rugby league thing from Scott Morrison, the reason why it's so powerful for working class people in those outer suburban and regional seats is because they've spent their whole lives feeling like their main obsession was looked down upon by other people, by mm. people from the city or people from the southern states. And so when you have a political leader who, and whether it's fraudulence or not, like it's just smart politics like mm. that, he's creating this emotional rapport with people who have felt looked down upon for a long time and that's why it's powerful. And yeah. I know when he went to the, the Sharks game, after the corona the coronavirus opened back up and whether again whether that was right or wrong whether he should have done that while victoria was was facing this terrible crisis like i think one thing we know about scott morrison is that he knows exactly what he's doing mm. and so rocking up to a sharks game like that and producing the backlash that it did was like again exactly what he wanted exactly what he wanted and and another one of those little signals that he's sending out to to all of those what he calls the quiet Australians. Mm. Here's all these people who who don't respect people like us, and obviously, mm. uh, whether he's he's one of the, really one of them is yeah a, di- a different subject. But I just sort of despair even at some of the stuff on Twitter about him going for the sharks and, mm. and all that sort of thing. Like I and I can see how that can seem trivial to people, but I, it just plays right into his hands. Yeah. And, you know, also playing into his hands, I suppose, it, it must be quite galling for the Labour leader, Anthony Albanese, he's kind of a lifetime South Sydney supporter, born and bred in Marrickville. He's absolutely a, a rugby league guy, and yet he's somehow being out-rugby leagued uh, by Scott Morrison. Anyway. It's, yeah, it's uh, just quickly, like, honestly, the whole thing about politicians who are sporting fanatics and faking it or whatever like there isn't a politician who's probably been more more or, or put more on the line like in a tangible way for their sport of choice than anthony albanese so <laughs> i think that it must absolutely shoot him to tears that it's like scomo had basically out elbow elbow because like he it's like he like went away and was just like okay this guy is onto something but he's in the wrong party i'm gonna take <laughs> everything and just take it up a few notches and then and then win an election and so yeah that's a really hard place for him to be now because it's like this guy is just just doing like an exaggerated version of himself yeah that's right now uh, for those who don't know lick wrote another essay last year on the 2019 Australian federal election titled How Good is Queensland? And to me, that was the definitive post-mortem of what swung that election. Like, for me, this Rugby League article has echoes of that piece as they both cover in their own different ways what happens when people who think they know the lay of the land misunderstand or misjudge or underestimate uh, working people. Did you see similarities writing this piece or was it just a coincidence or have I overthought things? No, it's not a coincidence. Like, I didn't necessarily go into it consciously uh, as a continuation, but yeah, it's definitely part of that whole trying to to get progressive people uh, and progressive readers and progressive leaders to to understand the mind frame of people that they might not come into contact with all the time, which can only be a good thing for progressive politics. And yeah, that was the driving force behind that essay. Um, wasn't to provide definitive answers; it was simply to show the way that people thought and yeah this was slightly different it, it really talked to uh, most of the people that i spoke to had some sort of power mm. and were quite central to the game but i think that all of the broader stuff around that about 
class and the way that people feel disrespected or um, devalued. Yeah, that that's all really part of that whole zeitgeist that we're seeing, not just in Queensland but like right around the world at the moment. Yeah, and yeah, as I as I said, that sport can seem trivial, but I, I think it's having a really tangible effect on politics through the way that that persona obtains power and so i i think that's a really useful thing to help frame what what happened um at the election to then yeah go one step further and really dig into the the rugby league which i think i mentioned in the in the queensland essay but um Mm. yeah this is sort of i guess the the queensland essay but about rugby league (laughs) it's absolutely fascinating stuff now like we're out of time unfortunately but it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you and flesh out some of the issues that you raised in your essay well played once again on an extremely interesting and timely piece and we look forward to reading your next Lec blaine thanks for taking the time on the progressive rugby league podcast no worries it's been an absolute pleasure Progressive Rugby League. Fabulous stuff. And for those interested, Lech will be publishing his first book, Car Crash, a memoir in April 2021. So keep an eye out for that. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for your continued kindness. You know how to make a guy blush. Until we next meet, Rugby League, hold me close and see you later. I should probably do that properly. Rugby League, hold me and see ya.